This is a talk by Joel titled Listening to the Stones, talk number three, Emptiness of Objects, recorded October 2011 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Is there anything urgent you need to share with us, Jack? Well, apparently the, uh, the guy is coming to fix the damper wants to come a little earlier so if we can wrap up like around uh, quarter till or 10 to 12, that would be preferable. As synchronicity has it, we're going to be wrapping up before then, probably. Okay. Now that our Guru Stone has shown us the futility of pursuing worldly things because they are impermanent, we are ready to roll up our sleeves and embark on the spiritual journey in quest of timeless truth. So, the question is, where do we find timeless truth? Where do we even begin to look? And here's what Jesus says in the Gospel of Thomas. The kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth, and men do not see it. The kingdom of the Father, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is right here. We need to look no farther. But the trouble is we don't see it. So that's the question for us. It's not that we're not in the right place. We're in the right place. That's why this is a mandala, a teaching mandala. But for some reason, we cannot see it. So why would that be? Well, we said the primary reason is we are distracted. We are distracted from seeing it by our thinking minds and the stories that our thinking minds weave into the big story, the story of I which constantly runs through our head like an endless soap opera. And we interpret all our experience through the lens of that story. How does all this relate to me? This is the delusion, the story of I, that actually veils the kingdom of the Father from us. We're sitting in the middle of it, but it's just like we have this big veil on. And the world that we do experience through this veil is imaginary. It's not real. This is why uh, Rumi writes, This world is maintained by imagination. You call it reality since it can be seen and perceived. And those meanings of which the world is an offshoot you call imagination. The true situation is the reverse. So, we think that this is the reality, and then we think that what this world is pointing to, as we talked about earlier, that everything is a manifestation of the divine, of the ultimate reality, we think, well, that's imaginary, that ultimate reality, that God, that divinity. I don't experience it. That's probably something these mystics made up or, you know, they were smoking too much dope or whatever. Uh, that's imaginary. This is the reality, just the way we experience it. But the testimony of the mystics is, no, things are not the way they appear. Who, who stone taught them that? Somebody over here. Was it yours? Ah, right, that's right. That was the second thing. Think, 
Things aren't as they appear. Very good. Exactly right. Things are not as they appear. So if we are going to see this reality, then we have to somehow remove this veil. Now, the veil, one of the qualities of the veil, one of the characteristics is it creates an impression that the world is dualistic, or really, to be more accurate, multiplistic. It's made up of all these different objects, things, and so forth. But listen to what the Lakamatara Sutra says, the great Buddhist sutra. False imagination teaches that such things as light and shade, long and short, black and white, are different and are to be discriminated. But they are not independent of each other. They are only different aspects of the same thing. In essence, things are not two, but one. All duality is falsely imagined. All duality is falsely imagined. In other words, reality is non-dual. But that's not the way we experience things. Now, listen to Meister Eckhart, a Christian mystic. And from an exoteric point of view, you can hardly have two more different religions than Buddhism and Christianity. But here's what he says. If we will see things truly, they are strangers to goodness, truth, and everything that tolerates any distinction, be it in a thought or in a name, in a notion or just the shadow of a distinction. They are intimates of that one that is bare of any kind of multiplicity. Isn't he saying exactly the same thing that the Lakamatara Sutra is saying? Slightly different wording, but you could almost not tell them apart. So, it's thought that creates this sense of duality by creating distinctions and then superimposing them onto the experience. Here's how uh, Chung Su describes it, the great Taoist. Just as a road is formed merely by people walking constantly upon it, likewise the things are formed by their being designated by this or that particular name. So we use names and our constant use of names, we forget that they are names and we begin to think that there are actual things that are named by the names. So, naming this stone, just by naming it, I create a distinction, a boundary that separates this stone from everything else. And there I have duality, right there. I don't even have to name anything else. I just have this and everything else that's not this. The simplest form of duality. So, the trouble is not the naming, but we take then the boundary created by the name, the distinction created by the name, to be real. And the technical term for that is we reify it. It's a reification of the name. Naming is very useful. If I want a clock, and I don't have a clock here, I can say, Mike, can you dig me up a clock someplace? And he'll bring me a clock instead of a gong striker. 
Because if, if it didn't distinguish anything, he could just bring me anything. Anything would be a clock. The problem is that we reify these distinctions. Now, the primary distinction we make, the, the fundamental one, the foundation, we could say, of all the rest, is the distinction between I and other, self and world, subject and object. Here's what the Tibetan master Bokar Rinpoche says about that. The fundamental dysfunction of our minds takes the form of a separation between I and other. That's it. We can zero in on that one. That's the the biggie. If we can see that that distinction is imaginary, it's not real, that's the end of the whole game. That's the, the card that you pull out and the whole house of cards collapses. But we need to work our way there, usually, occasionally, People just get it. But most of us have to go through a process of working our way there. Listen to the Hindu, Anandamayama. She says, What does direct perception of that mean? The direct perception of that. That thou art, the ultimate reality. That's what you ultimately are, if you only knew it. So what does direct perception of that mean? Seer, seeing, seeing. These three are realized as modifications created by the mind superimposed on the one all-pervading consciousness. Again, it's the same thing. The same thing as Bokar Rinpoche said. So, the veil then has two sides, we could say. The subjective and the objective. And this primary distinction creates this impression that we live in a particular body here and we move about in an objective world out there. So to see through this veil, we need to look closely at both sides. We need to look at the objective side and see if it's really true. Are there objects out there? And then we need to look at the subjective side and see if there really is an observer, an eye, a self in here. So we're going to start with this primary distinction and we're going to take that as the basis of how to proceed with our investigation, with our inquiry. So, how then does imagination create this sense of separate objects. Now we're looking at the objective side here. So how is the sense that there are these solid objects created out there? Well, imagination, as we said, projects a boundary, a distinction, a boundary. And we touched on this the other day, and we can go back to our teacher, our guru stone, and we can examine it closely and see that, first of all, when I just look at it, there's a visual phenomena. That's the only thing that's manifesting here in relation to what I call a stone. No sensation, no smell, no sound, nothing else. Just a visual. And then if I pick it up, and everybody should pick up their stone. And let's tap it again. Now, close your eyes as you tap it. Okay. Now, that tapping, notice that's another phenomenon. That's arising in the sound field. 
And notice it's different from the visual phenomena. Open your eyes and look again. It's a quite a different phenomenon. It's totally different. Okay, now close your eyes again and then hold the stone in your hand and become aware of the bodily sensation. So that's a different phenomenon too, isn't it? And then you can smell your stone and you don't have to lick your stone. Uh, (laughs) Each of these are different phenomena from different fields arising and passing in consciousness. So what happens then? Imagination encircles these phenomena as a set and gives them a name. Stone. But when we analyze it, when we go look, it's actually just this various phenomena. You know, it's like looking at the sky at night. Can everybody here recognize the Big Dipper? Is there anybody who can't recognize the Big Dipper? If you look at the pole star, you know. So you can see the Dipper. But you know that the mind has created a dipper. You know that there really is no dipper out there. In fact, other cultures, what they see is a great hunt. Hunting gathering cultures all across uh, Eurasia. They looked up in the sky and they saw a bear. I'd forgotten exactly how it works. A hunter stalking a bear who's after a bird or something. And they go round and round the great hunt. Several constellations make that up. What? Several constellations make that up. The, the big dipper is the bear. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. So it's part of a different picture, and it's not a dipper, it's a bear. So we can see that. We can see that that's not actually a dipper or a bear in the sky. But when it comes to a stone, no, we don't see it. It's not obvious to us. We think there is an inherently existing stone, apart from all these phenomena, the visual phenomena, the sound and all that, but behind all that, there's some object, some stone. Here's what Shankara, the great Hindu sage, says about it. The Atman is the ground and the reality. This appearance of a universe is only seen through our deluded eyes. When true knowledge arises, the Atman is revealed as existence itself, and the apparent universe cannot be seen apart from it. So our delusion that there's some stone out there separated from the consciousness that's observing it, that's the delusion. Here's what Ibn Arabi says. The cosmos is but a fantasy without any real existence, which is another meaning of the imagination. That is to say, you imagine that the cosmos is something separate and self-sufficient, while the truth is, it is not so. There is no separately existing cosmos full of separately existing objects out there. And here's the Tibetan master Geshe Rabtan. For us now, the way things appear does not correspond to the way they actually exist. They appear to us as inherently existing whereas in fact they have not even the slightest trace of inherent existence. 
So, when we look at our guru, it seems like we are seeing an inherently existing object. But what he's saying is there is no inherently existing object. There is an appearance here, but there's nothing behind the appearance, we might say. So, the way the Buddhists describe this is that they say the objects that we take to be inherently existent are empty of that inherent existence. This is a little bit strange, especially to our Western ears, because the word empty to us is a totally negative word, and often we equate it with a vacuum or something like this, empty space or whatever. And that's not what it means. It's a a remedial teaching that counters something that we project to be real, and it says, well, it's empty of that reality. So, when they say the stone is empty, it doesn't mean the stone isn't appearing, or what we call stone isn't appearing. It means, again, that this stone has no independent reality uh, other than the awareness, the consciousness in which it appears. And we can uh, see this in the example of a dream. If I'm dreaming, and from a mystic's point of view, in a certain sense, I am dreaming here, then I experience this stone as existing independently of me. When I wake up from the dream, I see there was no independent stone independent of me. It was all me. It was non-dual. So the technical meaning of emptiness in the Buddhist tradition is not that everything is a vacuum or everything is empty space or something like that. It has this very precise meaning. It means that it is empty, it has no independent, inherent, objective existence. Just the way dream objects have no independent, inherent existence. Now, this idea of emptiness is not just a Buddhist idea. They're the ones who use this term emptiness, which is actually the Sanskrit term shinyata, the most, and it's a major part of particularly Mahayana Buddhist teachings, but it's not just a Buddhist idea. Let me read you something Rumi wrote. The worldly man imagines that a non-existent thing possesses splendor. O friend, why would a wise man devote his life to the work of non-existence? Because of the darkness in your eyes, you imagine that a nothing is a something. Your eyes can be made healthy and illumined by the dust of the king's doorstep. You imagine a nothing is a something. That's just a way of talking exactly about what the Buddhists are saying. We imagine that a a nothing, something that does have any independent, inherent existence, is a something. And then we waste our lives chasing it. Elsewhere, Rumi also says, which I love, he says, describing our situation under delusion, he said, nothing at all has waylaid a nothing at all. And what he means is, objects that don't really have any existence have waylaid a self that doesn't really have any existence. And so that's the, that's the situation we find ourselves in. So this idea of uh, things being empty, things being no thing, ultimately, is not specifically a Buddhist idea although I must say they probably make use of it more than other traditions. So, 
Then the question is, how can we go and investigate this teaching of the emptiness of all things, of their inherent existence, how can we go investigate that for ourselves? How can we make an empirical investigation? How can we find out for ourselves? We don't want to just take the Buddhist word for it. We want to go see if that's true. So what would we do? Here we are sitting in a room full of objects. Well, the primary, most accessible clue to their emptiness is the impermanence of everything which we've spent some time investigating here. And, you know, I read you Longchenpa uh, the other afternoon, and he gave these instructions about going into the forest and examining the impermanence of everything in the forest. And if you noticed, it was connected with the emptiness of everything. He said, go look in the lotus ponds, and you'll see the reflections, and they'll teach you about the emptiness of things. And he talked about how the body is impermanent and it's sure not to have any inherent existence. So he's linked them in that teaching. We just investigated the impermanence part, but now we're going to uh, look further and see what is the connection between impermanence and emptiness here. It's specifically the emptiness of objects, because we're looking at the objective side of the veil, right? So, taking impermanence as our clue, that's something we can see quite readily, as we've already discovered. And now we're going to, uh, again, look through our microscope and we're going to look very closely at our experience of objects. So, we're going to do this in a contemplative frame of mind. We've been practicing here attaining spacious awareness and an undistracted mind. So, we're going to start by doing that and then we're going to turn to our Guru Stone and we are going to ask for teachings about impermanence and how that shows us the emptiness of the guru uh, in this case. So we need to first of all put your guru someplace where you can see it but also where you can easily handle it. So if you can put it in your lap that's great or put it down someplace where you can easily retrieve it. And then we will begin with some concentration and I'm going to give you a guided meditation with suggestions of what to look for. And then you uh, can see for yourself what this connection is between impermanence and the emptiness of the stone. So everybody ready? Here we go. So we begin with concentration to stabilize our attention.
let your attention expand to include the field of bodily sensations. And notice that they are all impermanent. attention to expand to include the sound field. And notice that sounds are impermanent. If any tastes or smells are present, allow attention to expand to include them. And notice those phenomena are impermanent. attention to expand to include the visual field. Slowly blink your eyes several times and notice that visual phenomena are impermanent.
attention to expand to include the mental field. And generate the thought, all phenomena are impermanent. thought to self-liberate and notice that all thoughts are impermanent. Now allow attention to expand into the total field of consciousness awareness. And notice that all the phenomena that appear in all the fields are impermanent. Now place your Guru's stone somewhere where you can see it, but don't hold it in your hand. Don't touch it with your hands. Now notice what you're experiencing. The phenomena you're experiencing is a rising, arising in the visual field. It's a visual phenomenon. Now close your eyes and notice the visual phenomena has gone. Open your eyes.
notice a visual phenomena has arisen. Close your eyes and turn your stone over and then let go of it. Now open your eyes and notice a different visual phenomenon has arisen. Now close your eyes and notice that visual phenomena has gone. Realize that all these visual phenomena are impermanent. They come and they go. There is nothing in the visual phenomena that has inherent, continuous, objective existence. Open your eyes. Now pick up your stone close your eyes and tap it slowly. each tap is a sound phenomena arising in the sound field. Each tap is very different from the visual phenomena. Each tap is impermanent. comes and it goes. There's nothing in the tapping sounds that has continuous inherent existence. Keeping your eyes closed, hold the stone in the palm of your hand or on your fingers. Move it around a little bit. Notice what you're experiencing are bodily sensations. Transfer the stone from one hand to another. Notice each bodily sensation is different and that the bodily sensations are different from the sound phenomena and from the visual phenomena.
notice that each sensation is impermanent. It comes and it goes. Notice that there is no continuous inherent existence in the arising and the falling of the bodily sensations. Keeping your eyes closed, sniff your stone. to taste it. Then remove your stone from the proximity of your face and notice that the taste phenomena and the smell phenomena are different from the sound phenomena, the sensation phenomena, the visual phenomena and the taste phenomena and the smell phenomena are impermanent. There's nothing inherently existing in the tastes or the smells. Now put down your stone so that it's not touching your hands. Hopefully it's not touching at least any of your skin. And keep your eyes closed. And notice that none of the phenomena you've associated with stone, the visual phenomena, the sound phenomena, bodily sensations, the smells, the tastes, none of them are present. They were all impermanent. They arose and they passed away. What's left of the stone? Is there anything that has continuous, inherent existence that remains? Chances are, however, that you still believe There is an objectively existing stone out there. Okay, generate as vividly as possible this thought. Even though right now I neither see, hear, touch, smell, or taste it, there is definitely an objectively existing stone sitting out there in front of me.
Notice that what you are experiencing is a mental phenomenon. It's a thought, and as such, it's imaginary. Think that thought again. There is a stone sitting out there in front of me. By definition, it's imaginary. It's an image, a thought arising in the mental field. In a certain sense, you've located your stone and you found a thought. Now allow that thought to self-liberate. And notice that the thought itself is impermanent. It has no continuous objective existence. So, what was your experience in this inquiry? Did you find an objectively existing stone? Yes, Jean. Well, I noticed on the visual that I closed my eyes and the empirical experience, as you say, was it was gone. But then I could, the mind, (laughs) start turning and go, well, yeah, it's very yeah, it's a, this time. yeah, but this is exactly what what we're driving at. So you can see that the mind is creating this. See, this is why we spend so much time trying to separate our actual sensory experience from our mental thoughts about the experience, so that we can recognize what's going on. Sure, there's no visual experience of the stone, but yes, the mind is thinking about it. The mind is saying, oh, well, it's got to be out there. I just know it's out there. That's a theory. That's not the stone. It's a theory. It's a mental thing. Does everybody follow that? Did anybody have that experience? The mind kept saying, yeah, but I know there's a stone out there. You know, it's, it's difficult for the mind to let go of this. You know, we've been conditioned to confuse the sensory and the mental experiences so long, it's not easy to see through it. That's why we need practice, repeated practice. You're just scratching your head? (laughs) Yes? I was just surprised at how much the stone wasn't there. 
I mean, when that last image went out of my mind, this, this stone just wasn't there. It was just like <laughs> a shock. <laughs> yes, good, good. See, that's a direct insight. I mean, it's not that you have a, an idea that the stone isn't there. You experience it. The stone is not there. It's the absence of the stone you're experiencing. The emptiness of the stone. You see, now you get some inkling of what the Buddhists are talking about and Rumi's talking about. Yes? Oh. I'm overwhelmed with emotion. When, um, you, when you said to visualize the stone with my eyes closed mm-hmm. and see the stone, my thought was, there is only God. Overwhelming emptiness in a, in a like nothing. <laughs> but was that a positive experience or a negative experience or what? What was the emotional tone about it? Fear. Fear. Okay, good. Now I'm going to tell you a story. Some of you have heard the story before. It's about a great Tibetan master, Tsongkhapa. And he was giving this very teaching about emptiness to a room full of monks, a hundred monks in a monastery, all who had heard this teaching of emptiness since their time, they're this big. You know how they train in the monasteries, the little kids, and they train in emptiness, and they get it drilled in, and they argue about it, and they debate about it, and all this. And he's giving this teaching once again, and in the back of the room, one monk, as he's listening to this teaching, goes... (gasps) And he grabs his pillow. He's suddenly he's overcome by fear. And Sankapa looks at him and says, Ah, now you're getting it. Because this reaction is the reaction of a direct experience of the truth of it. Non-conceptual, not filtered through the mind. So, if you experience fear here, I know it's hard to perhaps rock, but it's a very good thing. Don't be afraid of the fear. It's a sign of success. And this is true, by the way, in all traditions. As we get close to the divine, we experience in the theistic traditions the fear of God. Because the true perception of God, the true gnosis of God, means we don't exist. There's nothing but God. Well, that's scary to the poor little ego. If it happens again, it's okay. Just stay with it. Don't be macho and go looking for it. Just be willing to stay with it. Eventually, not only do we get comfortable with the fear... The fear, as happened to Raman Maharshi, becomes our ally. The fear becomes the energy of our practice. But that's a high-class problem at this point. But don't think it was something negative that happened. Very much something positive. Yes, Judith. Um, this may be a sign that I totally failed this um, exercise. Um, but I felt uh, tremendous excitement uh-huh. uh, when it really ceased to exist. 
So, because um, I think in previous uh, practices of this on my own, there was always the uh, yabbit. A what? Yabbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah but. Yes, the yes, but. <laughs> yes, but. Yabbit is really there. And, and this time, too, with your guided meditation, it was not there. Great. And that was thrilling. Great. You've been doing some intense practices in the last year or two, haven't you? Yeah, so I'm not surprised you're thrilled. I mean, most of us are ambiguous about enlightenment. On the one hand, we want it or we wouldn't be here. Something in us at least wants it. Something in us recognizes it's a call and you're responding to the call in whatever form it's coming in. But then another side is saying, well, wait a minute, I don't want it. Wait a minute, this really means the end of the ego? This really means the end of the self? I'm not sure I do want it. So most of us are caught between these poles. And that's why the spiritual path is sometimes described as spiritual combat. For some people, it becomes a real intense inner struggle. But not for everybody. Some people, you know, take to it like ducks to water. It's just right away. So there's no way you can fail this. The only way you can fail this is actually to intellectually understand it so thoroughly that you're not interested in investigating anymore. And then your resistance has taken this form of, now I got it, the mind understands it, so let's go have some pizza. And then you're not going to get anywhere. So that intellectual understanding is, in my experience as a teacher, has been the biggest obstacle. But any kind of emotional tone response, excitement, fear, resistance, oh, now you know that we're getting below the level of just the intellect. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty. Yeah, Harami. So, I was sort of prepared for Joel's magic. I mean, it's kind of like knowing the trick, and then sort of, okay, then that's going to happen, then this is going to happen, and I'm supposed to surprise, but then I never knew it. So, when the last part of then notice that was, that was just mind, or that was just a thought, mm-hmm. And then I was, I was just literally astonished. That was my thought. It was actually wasn't there. So I, uh, it was just sort of like I was surprised that I surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I already knew. Ah, beautiful. (laughs) Yes, that's great. See, that's what I mean. You thought you knew. But then you really get a look, and then you realize you didn't know, and this is the way for many people the path proceeds. We learn it intellectually, okay, we understand it, but then, oh my gosh, I didn't really think it was like this. I can remember the first time I got a really good hit of uh, impermanence, and I had read, you know, Meister Eckhart, and read the Buddhist, and, the, and I was meditating, and I just felt it everywhere. It wasn't just a thought anymore. It was scary. If I had a pillow, I would have grabbed my pillow. And I also had that surprise. I thought I understood this. Oh, I didn't understand this. But it also intrigued me. I felt I was on the scent, you know, like a hunter. You get the scent of the deer. I shouldn't use that around people like you. (laughs) You get the the scent of the Brussels sprouts, you know. (laughs) Who else? We've got a few more minutes here. Nobody else? Okay, well, 
So then the instructions for the rest of the morning are a little bit like yesterday, to wander around through the forest and go down by the lake and all that, and again, see if you can find anything that has inherent, continuous, objective existence. And you experiment on your own just the way we did in here, do you know? You can sit down, you can look at a leaf, close your eyes, open them, feel the leaf, taste it, look at the trees. Uh, If you see raccoons or deer, you know, whatever. It's a search, it's a quest. Can you find the inherently existing object? The mystics have challenged us. They say, go look, you're not going to find one. Oh, yes, I will. I'm going to go look. I'm going to really look hard. The harder you look, the better. If you just say, well, I'll take their word for it, you know, I think I'll just sit here and space out and laxity by the pond, that's not going to do you any good. At that point, the teaching becomes the obstacle because you've believed it. You've taken it dogmatically and it's prevented you from investigating for yourself. So don't believe me, don't believe any of these great mystics I've quoted you. You go look for yourself. See if you can find that inherently existing object anywhere. Okay? So, 11.25 here, and we won't do a last meditation. We'll give them a chance to get in here and fix this, and we will quietly go our way and continue this exploration. Okay? We'll see everybody back here at 2.30. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.